you know, when you get in, into anything really passionately and intensively, you start sort of dreaming about them. And I used to go to sleep and see all these striped bands of chromosomes on the ceiling as I was falling asleep thinking, oh my God, what's happening to my brain? <laughs> Hi, I'm Cosmo Calloway. And I'm Eliana Stanford, and you're listening to Full Steam Ahead. Full Steam Ahead is a student-led podcast where we talk with thought leaders in the STEAM field to pick apart their origins in order to further understand the motivations behind their accomplishments and the hopes that they can provide fuel for the next generation of STEAM students. Welcome back, everybody. And today we are joined by Dr. Khan, who is a Canadian poet, artist, and mosquito geneticist with a PhD in genetics. She's had training in systematics, entomology, and population genetics, and she's undoubtedly one of the most advanced scientists working towards malaria education. She's done field work in Venezuela, Brazil, Peru, Panama, and Colombia in order to study the factors that influence malaria transmission. With her studies, she has over 100 publications that outline the importance of understanding these factors in order to help end the malaria epidemic. In addition to her academic career, Dr. Khan is an avid poet with nine books of poetry published. Now, if Dr. Khan isn't one of the most STEAM-oriented people we've hosted on this podcast, then frankly, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, She's also spoken at nine poetry festivals, one of which I was able to attend uh, online with Word Vancouver. But without further ado, please give it up for Dr. Jan Khan. Hi, everyone. How lovely to be invited and to meet you and to share. I don't know exactly what, because Cosmo told me that everything in the middle would be a surprise. So I don't quite know what to expect, but I imagine having listened to a few other STEAM broadcasts, podcasts, that it'll be really a lot of fun. So I'm kind of excited. Perfect. Uh, I love that excitement. So Dr. Khan, if I'm correct, Before you began studying the pathology of mosquitoes, you were an expert on the genetics of the black fly and how it transmits river blindness, otherwise known as onchocerciasis. And as we usually like to start with on the podcast, I'm wondering where this all began for you. What exactly made you want to start researching the genetics of species as it relates to disease transmission? It's a good question because when I started my undergraduate studies in in Canada, this is in Montreal, uh, we had... um, started a new system called CEGEP, which was a two-year college, and then you would do three years of university. And part of that, I think, honestly, politically, it was because they were, they were trying to keep kids in school for another year. I think the job market was really bad. And, um, we, and also, we finished high school in Quebec at 16. And it's pretty young to go immediately to university. So you'd be finished your bachelor's when you were 20, which, you know, is... Anyway, your brain isn't finished developing until you're 21. So I think it was probably not a bad idea. So what I did was because it was mandatory, I had to go to CEGEP. And my dad was really determined that I should start in science. But in fact, I enrolled in general arts and I took everything you could think of history and anthropology and um, archaeology and psychology. And I loved them all. So I had no idea what to do. So I stopped after two years and I decided that one of the things I really was interested in was working in a lab to find out if if science was something I wanted to do. So I worked for a couple of years and I got really, really bored, really seriously, but so bored that I decided I had to go back to university if I was going to do science. It seemed like it's very hard to do science without going through all the lab stuff and learning formally it's you know you can be a citizen scientist and those are really important and we really value them in our field work especially but 
to actually do the experimental work and the research design, you kind of have to go, you know, full throttle through a bachelor's degree and then usually a PhD before you can, you know, do that. So I thought that training was really necessary. So it kind of started all over again, but in science. So it took me a little bit longer than some um, of my peers to finish because I took that extra time to, to be sure that I, what I wanted to do. So then in my first year back in science in Montreal, same place, I, I sat in on a class by a wonderful professor and he was um, completely focused on insects. And I, all these light bulbs went off and you know, it's just one of those things that happens. You sort of say like, why insects? And I don't honestly know, but I realized that they were in every single environment we have and they interact with absolutely everything. They're in seeds, in plants, in, they bite us, they, they feed on us. They, they're just absolutely fascinating. And there's so many of them. The diversity of insects worldwide is staggering. So I thought I'm never gonna run out of things to think about or study or be interested in. And why black flies was because there was um, a really outstanding um, scientist at the University of Toronto, whose name was Klaus Rothfels. And he was working on black flies, even though he wasn't working in Latin America where I ended up doing my field work. He was very knowledgeable. He was probably the world's expert on looking at genetics and what's called cytogenetics of black flies. What's really amazing about black flies is you can look at their chromosomes. They have really um, multiplied, they're called polyteen chromosomes in the larval stage. And you can identify different species and different populations looking at those chromosomes. So you, you don't have, if you look at the adult flies or if you even look at the larvae, it's hard to identify species just looking at the external characters, the morphological features. So what he discovered was that if you look at these chromosomes and it's not that complicated to do really, to look at them because the larval stage has these really exaggerated size um, salivary glands that have a lot of these chromosomes in them. So it's easy to see them and you can um, squash them on a slide and identify all of the different, what they actually turned out all to be genes um, that look like striped socks. <laughs> <laughs> they really are wonderful looking. They're funny. And, you know, when you get in, into anything really passionately and intensively, you start sort of dreaming about them. And I used to go to sleep and see all these striped bands of chromosomes on the ceiling as I was falling asleep thinking, oh my God, what's happening to my brain? <laughs> so, um, but I was really particularly interested in something that was related to um, public health and, and human suffering. So I persuaded him to let me work on black flies in Latin America. And he said, you can certainly do that, but you have to write your own proposal and get funding. So I did, I got funding and I, I ended up working in Guatemala and Southern Mexico uh, for a couple of years. And it was amazing um, experience and also a really important um, experience for me because kind of a long story, but my dad, is a mining engineer, was a mining engineer, and he wanted a scientist of his, one of his five kids, and he got me as the scientist. And um, he, he gave me a book, it's a very racist 
um, mixed up book, but it was still a really interesting, full of information. It was called The Discovery and Conquest of Mexico and Peru by this guy named Prescott. And um, he gave it to me when I was 14 and I started reading it and I was just so completely taken by Latin American culture, art, history. I was just extremely fascinated and I thought, well, that's where I want to work. You know, so I can't explain, you know, why really more than that, why I work in Latin America, except maybe I grew up in Quebec. I spoke really fluent French at the time and, and Spanish was not much of a reach. But I just found going south was what I wanted to do. You know, it's not because I'm Canadian, but just because there's a real pull for me. And I, that's, I think it's intuitive. I just, I, I found every description I read of Latin American countries, the landscape, the art, um, the people, um, that it just was so compelling to me that I thought, well, I'm really gonna strive to work there. So when I told him that he said, yeah, as I said, he said, sure, you can. And I did get funding. So I ended up working there and um, did my all my PhD research in mostly in Guatemala. And it was really thrilling. Um, but I also had friends who were working really hard to eradicate um, Onchocerca volvulus, which is the nematode parasite that causes river blindness. So the thing is, what happens is the, the, the black flies transmit the parasite. So if you have it, Cosmo, uh -oh. and the black fly bites you and picks it up and it develops in that black fly over a period of time, it could be a couple, usually about a couple of weeks. And then the infective stage, which is after a couple of rounds of development, could bite Eliana, and then she could get this Onchocerca volvulus in her skin, and then eventually could cause river blindness. So you have to, you know, somebody has to have it. The black fly is the transporter, picks it up, develops in the black fly, and then goes into the human. So the whole idea was to to reduce, to cut the connection between the humans and the black flies, to reduce the number of bites because some of them are infective. So that's that sort of was the long-term goal. And it was a really interesting, I learned an enormous amount of things about what Guatemala was like. So this was during some of the troubles in Guatemala. So I actually saw somebody shot, I saw, I saw two people shot while I was um, there and it was really horrifying and sobering and it made me very aware of the relative isolation of being in Canada at the time. I finished my PhD at the University of Toronto and then went and lived in Venezuela to do my postdoc because I thought if I'm really serious about Latin America, I've got to learn Spanish really well. So that was my um, kind of entree uh, into getting immersed completely in a a Latin American culture. So Venezuela at the time was a much freer society. It was a, a safer, saner place to be. So I was living in the capital and there's a very good university there, the University of Caracas, it's the national university. And um, that was a, a really amazing experience. I was there for two years and I did both laboratory work and field work. And um, that was pretty exciting. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. And from there, what inspired you to get into mosquitoes and uh, malaria eradication? Well, I was really pragmatic as I started to say, I think a friend of mine was really focused on eradicating 
um, nematodes and well, the nematodes that transmit the Oncocerca, that transmit that result in river blindness, sorry. Those were only in small, really uh, circumscribed foci in Latin America. In Africa there, it's a huge area of Africa. It's much more difficult to, to get rid of. And there are many more species of, of black flies that transmit this nematode. But in Latin America, it turns out you can eradicate it if you really focus on those particular areas in Guatemala, these little sort of really unusual, interesting areas and in Venezuela, and it's, it's been eradicated in Colombia, where it used to be on the coast, in Ecuador, also now in Guatemala, in Southern Mexico. So I sort of had a feeling that that was coming. And I thought, well, I don't really wanna work on a disease that's going to be eradicated in my lifetime and in the future. So why don't I, I got an opportunity to work on malaria. And I said to myself, I'm very pragmatic from time to time, I thought, I, I could learn about mosquitoes. I could take the genetics work that I learned on black flies and try to apply them on mosquitoes and see you know, what I can learn. And then I don't know anything about malaria. So why don't I learn that? Because how interesting. <laughs> so that's what Venezuela was. The postdoc was actually a switch. It was an opportunity to jump from black flies to mosquitoes. And I thought, I really want to try this, you know? No, yeah, that, that's amazing. And that kind of reminds me that in preparation for this episode, I was listening to a reading of Botero's Beautiful Horses, which is one of your books. And in my head, I was drawing these fascinating, almost like surreal situations. Um, and and I was wondering how you think your poetry connects to your academic research and, and what that relationship is like. And what really made me think of this was, it's this line, I think I, I have it written down, in my insect net, I catch songs and voices. And so I was just wondering how, what that relationship is like between your poetry and your academic research. I wouldn't be able to write about um, so, so descriptively and um, emotionally and passionately about um, the poetry in Latin America if I hadn't spent a lot of time there because I'm not just a tourist. I've been going there since ooh, a long time for many years. And so I have accumulated a lot of experiences and I'm, because I speak Spanish and, you know, Portuguese reasonably well, I, I don't miss so much when I'm there and I take a lot of photographs and I write a lot of notes and the, um, and I make a, a real point of um, talking to people outside of my, outside of academia and also of going to a lot of art museums and going into the field, not just for biology, but also to see what else is there going to parks and doing hiking so that I see as much as I, you know, as one reasonably can in a two or three week period, that's not necessarily only focused on uh, my biology um, research. And I think that the, the inspiration and the visual imagery and all of the things that are, that happen in Latin America for me is still a, a source of incredible fascination and it really fuels my poetry. So, I mean, I, I do write poetry directly from my notes that I take, even if they seem to be science, they end up feeding the poetry. And it's, I think it's because I keep such detailed notes of everything I see and landscape as a metaphor is a really major part of my poetry. And since I'm seeing these diverse landscapes and I'm always thinking 
you know, not just what are the mosquitoes doing and what's the, what's the disease doing, but what are, how are people surviving? You know, what's their daily life like? Where do they get their water? Um, how do they have a creative imagination when they're focused so much on just on surviving? Like what's their rich inner life? We are so, um, I don't know, spoiled, but you know, whatever. We, we are able to have the time to develop a really rich inner life in my opinion. And everybody needs that. I think it's an essential part of being human. And I, so I would often be finding myself you know, talking to people who are fishing for a living and thinking, well, how, you know, they learn, they have so much information and knowledge about how the fish behave, what time of day they can go and get which fish. And they just are remarkably knowledgeable, but it's not knowledge that we necessarily have really understood how to value in a, in a, not in a monetary way, but in a real way that, you know, that is really human, you know? And so I, so the, all of those things um, provide me with a great deal of information, inspiration. And also, um, I'm not American, I'm Canadian. And so I feel a little bit alien in the United States. And I always have. I don't feel like I quite belong because I've stayed as a Canadian. And so I can't vote. And maybe that's not great. But I can't. I've, I'm really proud to be Canadian. And I, I don't feel... Um, that I can do both. So I, when I'm in Latin America, I feel sort of really connected to, to people who aren't American too, who sort of understand what it might be like to be maybe dreaming about living in America and, you know, at least in the past and, and trying to understand what, what they crave and what they want and what they see that they envy. And, you know, what, how can we do trend, technology transfer so that they can develop those things themselves in their own country. They don't have to, you know, be longing to, to be in another place because, you know, most of these countries, they, they have tremendous resources. They have tremendously beautiful landscapes. They have everything they need. If, you know, they could be sort of better democracies, you know what I mean? So they could you know, have less corruption. There are a lot of ways, you know, that they could be, kind of more like model countries. And so I, I really think a lot about that when I'm there, when I'm traveling, like why in the US, if you order a, um, a supply that you need for the lab, it, it comes in a couple of days. And, you know, there's not a back order, there's not a problem getting whatever you need. But there it could take a month or two. And it one of the best things about living in Venezuela for two years is it made me very aware of why some of my colleagues would be working on theoretical problems instead of going into the field because they couldn't afford a very expensive um, four-wheel drive truck. They couldn't afford all the gasoline. They couldn't afford all the travel. They didn't really, their governments weren't giving them very good grants. They're really small and they're just not, so they would be doing a lot of wonderful conceptual and theoretical science, which is really important too. But there they would be in Venezuela in the middle of this fascinating it's a country that has so many different landscapes and so many different issues of different kinds of infectious disease problems that you you would want them to be able to work themselves on those issues in the field. But, you know, you see, you saw that they were so constrained um, sort of technically and uh, by bureaucracy that they couldn't accomplish their goals. And it was heartbreaking and it still is heartbreaking. And Venezuela, of course, now is even more complicated than when I lived there.
that's a long, these are long answers to your questions. <laughs> Oh, you're that's great. Okay. We love as much information as we can get because okay. you're fascinating. You're fascinating, <laughs> a, and b. Your passion is inspiring. I can feel it through the screen. Oh, it, it really reminds me of when you said that you like would go to sleep and you would see the chromosomes <laughs> on yeah. your ceiling. It reminds me of the Queen's Gambit. Oh, we're just watching that. We're just watching it's it. So <laughs> incredible. Amazing. She's fascinating. And she's, she's nine. Oh my God. She's nine. When she and she's done. watching it on her ceiling. She's playing the games I like the masters. Yes. Feel, it makes me feel really underaccomplished. Never but mind. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody's quite such a genius. I think that um, just that ability to have that intersection because chess in itself is an art form, but it's also very intellectual. And mm -hmm. I think everything that you're doing with the biology and art and poetry, it's all very artistic and creative, but also very much rooted in intellect. So I was wondering what spurred your passions in that direction? Like what made you think I can do all of this? Like I don't have to just constrain myself to one field. Um, cause I think part of it is my dad who was, um, a mining engineer, but he also used to send us really, um, delightful and fascinating. He traveled all over the world. That's definitely why I travel. Um, he went, he spent sometimes six weeks or two months in India, you know, several times in a, in my lifetime, I went to South Africa, went to Australia, went to, he really went Guatemala, Colombia. I mean, he did work field work there and, um, and Mexico several times. And he sent amazing postcards. And um, you remember, I don't, you won't remember because you're a little younger, but there were these aerograms. They were blue and really thin and you could write a lot of information on those and they would be really cheap to send. And he would send, you know, four or five pages with incredible details of everything he was seeing. So he was also fascinated by other cultures, other ways that people were surviving. And he was very, very interested in other ways of living and way, ways that people, you know, what people ate, um, how they survived daily, like how are the mining, what were the mining engineers like in other countries? Like, were they the same? Did, you know, how did they find things? How did they discover things? So he wrote these great things and they came back, you know, to us, you know, five kids and my mom at home and my grandmother at home. And I read these and it seemed to have my sister, Diane, uh, who Cosmo knows is also really loves to travel and, and experience um, a lot of other um, cultures and art, but my other siblings, not quite so much not in the same way, I think, not so passionately. So it clearly came from my dad, um, this sort of desire to think about, he used to write very um, precise, almost like short stories. So that started me thinking about poetry. I don't honestly know why I started writing poetry as opposed to short stories, but I um, had something published in my, you know, and I went to boarding school for one year. Um, I had a poem published in there and that just sort of gave me a little bit of a, of a sense and then when I moved to Vancouver to do my master's degree I actually lived with my brother who was already a published poet David and I kind of start hanging out with all of these other poets even though I was doing my master's degree at the same time in uh, bark beetles which we, we didn't talk about but that that was before the, the black flies in Toronto I was doing um, working on pheromones and chemical ecology of bark beetles in 
the middle of the, the wonderful, gorgeous ponderosa pine forests of the interior of British Columbia, which were being decimated by um, a very aggressive bark beetle. So that was a wonderful couple of years, um, but also for the science, it really was. And I also was combining lab work with field work, which is my favorite thing to do, but also because my brother's friends were almost all writers. So I started going to these meetings and you know, I, I was invited to join a group of women who were um, all poets and short story writers. And um, I still have one of those friends. I don't think I'm, I mentioned to you that I also write collaboratively. We write um, haiku, four of us together. And we have published a couple of books and we're working on a third one. And one of those women was one of the people I met when I was 24 living in Vancouver. And she is the one who invited me to this woman's group. So I've been friends with her for so long. It's sort of like a sister. <laughs> So that's part of what happened, you know, why the poetry got really um, stimulated when I was living in Vancouver. And that was a wonderful experience. And it just kept going because then I started traveling to Latin America much more and it just really was feeding my writing. And then I got a book published, you know, and then another book. So when you start having publications accepted, you know that you've reached a certain sort of level of um, at least competence and maybe even some insight and some interesting ideas. And so I was getting a lot of really positive feedback from my writing and I was getting it from my science. And um, that was all very exciting. And then I met this woman, this is jumping forward a bit, but in 2014, I met, um, I gave a poetry reading in Saskatchewan in the, in the, the main city of Saskatoon. And I met a woman who was a painter and she was very interesting and interested in me. And I still, I don't quite know exactly why, but anyway, we had a really strong reaction to each other, which was lovely. And she said, you know, I think we should try to collaborate. And I was sort of scratching my head. You know, I was trying to imagine how we would collaborate. She's a very accomplished artist. I'm a poet and a scientist, but I don't know how to paint. So she said, well, um, just, come and we'll have a workshop for five days, come and stay with my husband and I in Saskatoon and let's just try because, you know, we have nothing to lose. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'm game. So off I went and she, she had prepared two canvas, two, not one, but two big canvases. <laughs> and, and she sat me down with a pencil and she said, draw something. <laughs> You can't imagine. I couldn't even move. I was totally paralyzed. I was, I was just, I said, I, I don't know how to draw. I don't know. I, I, I don't have any art skills. So I don't even, I, I mean, I think I drew like what looked like a sort of a river or no, I think I, I know what happened. She rescued me. She said, well, she's a person who would take her paintings because they're all on canvas and she would cut pieces of them up. If she didn't like them, if she didn't like parts, she would take keep the pieces she liked, but she would have cut them all up. So she gave me this great pile of pieces. And she said, now we have this great canvas. You could choose some of the pieces that you really like and we can glue them onto there and then paint around them and see what happens. So that's how I, I started. And it was overwhelming, but wonderful. We made seven really big pieces. They're all like four by five. They're big pieces of, you know, <laughs> and hard to, hard to have around. <laughs> because they're so big. And um, then she unfortunately and really tragically died a year and a half after that um, of cancer. And she's, she made me promise um, that I would keep on painting. And so I thought, okay, okay. 
thinking, oh, I don't have the skills. You know, I really needed uh, the spark from her because she had the mastery and I was just a, really an apprentice. But I've been painting pretty almost daily um, since then. And I'm, it's very exciting. And it, if I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I'm not sure that I had a lot of, I don't think I have a lot of drawing skills. Like I don't ever draw people. I'm not honestly interested. I'm interested in what we leave, we humans. Like I like houses. I like places, chairs, places where people have been, but not where they are now. And I love design and texture. And maybe I also used to sew all my own clothes. So maybe some of that is from, I, I mean, I kind of wish I'd been a textile designer because I love patterns and shapes and colors and how you can put them together. So I, I think it's sort of answered another um, part of my brain that loves colors and patterns that you can't always put in a poem. So it was like another facet of my brain that was sort of crying out, honestly, for recognition and a passionate way to, to make something. Because I loved, I think being creative is one of the saving graces of humans. I think we can, I want to say, um, I think it can be a kind of therapy, even if it's not formally therapy, but I think to be creative makes most people really happy in the same way that walking uh, and getting endorphins from walking, running or whatever you do. I mean, I do those, all of those things every day, constantly thinking I'm fighting off depression and sadness and, you know, all the things that are happening with COVID. And, you know, if you can kind of get into a sort of a rhythm of doing that on a regular basis. It's, it's amazing. It just feeds itself. I mean, I never used to dream about painting and every night now I'm painting away, you know, these, <laughs> I wish I had a camera in the inside of my brain because I would love to, to be able to recreate what I see. So it's pretty exciting. I think you can start, you know, there's no limit to when you can start doing something, you may not become like, a, you may not have 30 years if you start at 60 to be become a master, but that doesn't, you don't have to become a master. You can be really good at something and find it very satisfying and wonderful and, you know, wow your friends <laughs> if you have to do that. And it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be like the number one in the world. You just have to follow your own passion and do things that you really love. It's so important. I can, as these words are coming out of your mouth, I can hear this clicking with people that are going to be listening to this. I um, hope so, because it's so important <laughs> to find something you want to do. I mean, I got three things. How does that, I mean, I'm so lucky. And I do yoga, which I also absolutely love. So I think, you know, there's, you can find things that you love and you, you just have to really look for them and say, my God, I'm, I've got to, you know, some discipline is really helpful, but, you know, just jump in it, what it gives you, what they give you is, it's amazing. It's not even measurable. Hmm. I, I think there's also, I mean, there has to be some sort of beautiful metaphor there with the Saskatoon um, art piece where it's like cut up old bits of maybe our life that we're putting together to make something new. That's, you know, even, even greater. Um, and and kind of on that topic of initial works of art, what do you think inspired you to write your first book of poetry, Red Shoes in the Rain? And, and what has made you continue to write them over the years? Um, Red Shoes in the Rain, uh, I was having a really tumultuous time in my life um, after my mother killed herself when I was 24. And I, I needed to um, have an outlet for, I mean, I, I was in, I've been in therapy for many, many years. Um, and I felt that 
this was a creative way to try to express my feelings because one of the things that had happened to my mom was that she felt in unable to communicate her real feelings. And I know that was partly the time um, she died in 1976. So, you know, not just women, but men and women were not um, talking about their feelings to the degree that we try to most of us now, or at least try to be honest about what's really going on. It just wasn't the norm, you know, the cultural norm. And I think I felt really compelled to communicate what I was really feeling. And, and because I already knew how to write, I think that I, I had um, a kind of natural vehicle for writing. And I, um, my, as I said, my brother and his friends were really encouraging me and I got a lot of fabulous feedback. And I think at some point, if you keep on writing, you sort of realize if people, especially if people are kind of coaching you that, you know, you've got a manuscript, it's, um, there's sort of an underlying theme that, you know, that links all these poems together. They're associated with each other in some way, or they're about a specific period of your life, or they're about a particular place where you spent a lot of time. Um, there's a lot of ways people, you know, decide on what makes a manuscript of poetry. But in my case, it's usually been um, over a period of two or three years, basically everything that I've been able to write down that is articulable at the time you know you've got lots of deep feelings that never you know they might take till you're 60 to to even you know be written down because you you can't get at them some things you just don't get at until you're older it sounds like a really strange thing to say to people who are a lot younger but honestly it's a lot of it's just lived experience and you know you don't always remember um exactly so here's another example um, I was abused when I was seven, but I didn't remember until I was almost 30 that that had happened to me because um, you're sub I think honestly it's self-protection. And I think that, that a lot of people aren't aware of it for until they're a lot older and maybe it's a survival technique. So you can sort of handle it when you're older, but you couldn't, if you started remembering when you were 10 or 20, you know, it's just too much. You, you don't know how, you don't have any, you don't have any way to, to um, cope with it. You don't have um, mechanisms to, to, to function, to manage those things. So I, th I think it's, a, it's an amazing writing about those things and communicating about how you're really feeling in poetry is so important. Even if, you know, there are lots of people who say, well, the poet, what the poet is saying is not really exactly who they are. You know, poets are liars. But on the other hand, it, it's still a vehicle to express how you feel. And even if you, you know, um, are invoicing somebody else. So another of my books was the, the voice of Margaret Mee, who is an Amazonian explorer and a brilliant, brilliant woman. And so I kind of became her while I was, I spent four years working on that manuscript and researching it and going to England and seeing all her drawings and going to Brazil and seeing where she was working. And it, it took me that long to really feel who she really was and to, to try to write this whole book of poems about you know, all of her trips in the Amazon. And it was the most, one of the most focused and pleasurable books I've read, written because it had that um, incredible narrative kind of arc. And it was all about this one brilliant person. And, you know, so, and I had already been to the Amazon since I was, you know, I started going in 1987 to Brazil. So I had my own experiences so I could combine hers and mine. So it was a wonderful project you know, to have. And so poetry books can be like a, a really amazing project where you sort of say, oh, 
you know, I've become really fascinated um, by Arabic falconry in the 18th century. And I want to know everything I can about the culture of the time and how people were in relation to each other. And what was it really like to have falcons? Like, what did they mean um, culturally, but also symbolically and also emotionally to people? And how did they respond to them? So you can you can kind of take so many different kinds of things as a really deep, you know, deep theme and do a lot of really interesting research. And if you can get the emotional passion about them, you can write remarkable things because you sort of go places where you didn't expect to go, you know, which is what you want, right? <laughs> I think what you just said hits, it's gonna hit, it hits home with me personally, like not knowing where you're gonna go. And I feel like that idea of authenticity that you stress with all of your works of art is super important because I feel with social media and everything, there's a lot of filters on everything and not a lot of people are authentic about their passions, their struggles, their obstacles. Not a lot is genuine. So I think that's what inspired Cosmo and I to create this platform for to have older mentors come and talk to younger generations about really like what it is to have an authentic, real human experience. And a big part of that is struggle and trauma and working through that with coping mechanisms, like having different outlets. So just like, what are, that's just my long-winded way of saying, like what are some obstacles that you faced maybe as a woman, as an artist, as a scientist in general in a primarily um, male dominated field? Well, actually, you know, you'd be surprised that biology is not as male dominated as mathematics, physics, and chemistry. So actually, I think I kind of got a little bit lucky there. Um, I actually had started, I had planned to do chemistry. And then I sat in on this class on insects and I was like completely blown away by it. I thought, okay, that's it. That's insects or nothing. <laughs> so that's um, what happened. I, um, I feel... I feel, first of all, I was incredibly lucky, I think. But secondly, I think I'm not, I mean, I did have to sometimes sort of say to, to people, look, you're saying that I'm really aggressive, but I'm simply assertive. And if I were a man saying what I said, you would just think it was cool. But because I'm a woman, you're calling me aggressive and it's simply a, a mislabel. So I'm pretty outspoken and I'm always willing to stand up for myself um, and I learned that, I don't even know. I mean, I, I, can, I have had some really reckless behavior in my past. I mean, I, I did sit, mention that I'd been sexually abused when I was seven, but I was also raped when I was 17 and had to have an abortion. And a couple of other periods when I was traveling, I was sexually abused. So I've, I have a, you know, a kind of complicated history about that. And it makes me um, hypersensitive about some kinds of things. So I'm I'm very conscious of when people are trying to um, tell me that I can't do something or tell me that women don't do X. So I still have a bit of a beef for some poet in a uh, couple of poets in Ottawa and Canada who told me that it wasn't possible to be both a successful scientist and a successful poet. And they really thought that I was um, just, you know, I was 
um, I don't know what the word is, not incompetent, but that I couldn't, it just wasn't possible. And I just thought, you know, you, you must not have read any history because do you know what the Renaissance was? Do you know how many people in that, at that period of time in the world could do six things before breakfast? <laughs> do you know, seriously, you, you can internalize the limitations that other people put on you, or you can say, I'm not doing that. I don't have to take that in, but a lot of it is unconscious and I know that's the problem. So for instance, I pester my husband a lot, who's adorable, who's a scientist and loves art and because he doesn't notice um, so much until I train him. He doesn't notice then things are dirty or things need to be clean because he wasn't socialized to notice all of these like details about around the house, put this away, fix this, do, you know, I'm like the constant you know, walk around, put this here, put this there, but he, I've trained him to do the same. It's not exactly obsessive compulsive, but you know, at least the house is relatively neat, but you, you have to be aware that you're, you know, that people are socialized differently, even if you're trying to bring up your kids eventually to be pretty equal, which I think a lot of parents kind of, you know, if they're not into stereotypes are trying really hard to be fair to both their daughters and sons. Um, but it's, you know, you have to be willing to challenge things at lots of different levels. But so I, I feel, I don't know if it was because my dad was happy that I was a scientist and that I, you know, I did really well in school and I, I didn't have trouble getting into university. And um, I was, you know, I, I was happy to go to graduate school and I, I never had debts because, you know, one of the thing, nice things and not fair things about science versus the arts is if you're in science, you usually get you know, almost automatic um, scholarships and fellowships, and you don't end up with big debts in graduate school. And it's a big difference for most of my friends who went through something like philosophy, English, uh, psychology, anthropology, you know, have pretty serious debts. Anyway, you could also go to university in Canada <laughs> where it's just less expensive. I mean, I, that's the other thing. I mean, I went, I did all my degrees in Canada and it just wasn't, um, an expense. And so I, I didn't feel, you know, that extra load. It's not exactly sexism, but, you know, you it starts to feel like a, a terrible oppression when you have to pay a lot of money back. It's terrible for people. Um, so you have to be, you have to learn to stand up for yourself. However, you know, it can be really hard, you know, and especially I think if people have been traumatized and many people have been traumatized, like if you think if the stats are right about women and men being abused as children or as adolescents, you know, it's a third of the country, or maybe it's a third of the world, and all the people who've been in war, all the people who are refugees, all those people are traumatized. It's really hard to learn to stand up for yourself when you've been traumatized, because the first thing you want to do is escape any kind of anything that makes you nervous. And it, it takes tremendous, you know, sort of self-awareness and work to get at those underlying problems and, and work on them. And it, you know, it's all your life. I mean, I'm, I still have anxiety attacks and I'm 68 and I wish I didn't. But I also think um, there's a tremendous um, book called Woman Who Run With The Wolves. And one of the things, it's not even new, but it's a very powerful book and it, talks, there's also an accompanying, or at least it used to be an accompanying um, audio, uh, I guess at the time it was a CD, talking about 
um, children who've been abused are considered like the stone child who is so traumatized. But what it turns out is those stone children are so sensitive to the environment that if they can work through the trauma and sort of become um, functional, they have a tremendous sensitivity, like a radar to other people, which can be very, very useful. And you can, you can use that as, you know, for instance, I think that when I'm interacting with most people, I'm really paying attention to who they are and what, what they're about. And I'm very aware of where they are in a room. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's not paranoid. It's very much, I'm trying to be in the present tense and listen to what they're saying and feel who they are. And that goes for scientists in, you know, in a meeting. You, know, you, you wanna know who your allies are. You wanna know who you could intuitively trust. Who do you wanna work with? You know, people will come forward and say, like, wouldn't you like to do this and that? And let's put in a proposal together. And you have to be very um, willing to say, I'll get back to you. You know, not immediately say, wow, like, that sounds great. Or you could say, wow, that's like, that sounds great. But let's talk and let's, you know, let's put something together and see if it's really a, a good idea. Jen, we've been we've been hitting you with some loaded questions over the course of this podcast, but um, in an effort to kind of ease ourselves to the finish line, um, favorite haiku or favorite poem? Do you have one? Uh, I probably don't even have one, but there's a famous Basho one about frogs, which I, I can't even tell you. You'd have to go and look it up. So there. Um, but I do have a, one that I wrote um, about my own work and haiku that I'll, I'll tell you. Um, in my mosquito off hours, I write haiku. <laughs> That's it. I love it. That's perfect. Short and sweet. Um, and, and, and so to wrap up, thank you so much, Jen. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. It's honestly kind of felt like a free personal therapy session at points too. Um, so, so thank you so much for coming on today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks to both of you for listening and for asking good questions. It was really fun. Yes, and like Cosmo, it's our pleasure to have you here. I mean, you've inspired me to go downstairs and get my microscope afterward done and bring it up to my room. Great. Um, <laughs> and a special thank you to our audience as well. Thank you for tuning in. We greatly appreciate you coming back. And we hope to see you next time on the Full Steam Ahead podcast. Be sure to follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram for the latest info on upcoming guests, as well as Q&A opportunities, where we take questions directly from our followers and pose them to our guests. At Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram.